And and have a seat with me, or you have a seat, I won't, but um, I'm glad that you're here with us. Find your way in your Bible to James chapter 4. We're in the fourth chapter of James today, and James is going to say something to us today that is like as good of a life hack for spirituality as you will ever hear. What he's going to say is like so potent and so powerful, it's really uh, worth listening to. I, I will start it, though, with this question. Have you noticed as we've been reading James, and maybe as you've been reading uh, like on your own, like as the book goes on, it seems like he's getting a little angry. Have you picked up on that? Like there's a little bit of a tone. Maybe that's not a fair assumption to assign that motive to him, but it seems like there's a little bit of a tone of anger here. And we're going to feel that with what we're going to read today. Why do you think that is? Have you thought about that? I have a theory. Do you want to hear it? Good, because that's what I have prepared today. So, <laughs> good, I'll share my theory. Uh, here's my theory. I don't know if what we're hearing in the letter is so much anger as it is like this deep and desperate longing that James feels. Like, I think he's writing this letter, and he, he is so just desperate and filled with longing that these people to which he is writing would step in to the things of God that God has for them. He's longing for their faith in Jesus to be more than just a collection of opinions that they have about God, but to be something that actually changes them. He's longing for that. He's desperate for it. And I think it comes through in the way he writes. Remember, when he's writing, it's like this whole Jesus thing is in its infancy. Probably chronologically, James is the first book written in the New Testament, written in the mid-40s AD. That's not that long after Jesus ascended into heaven. And so this is a moment when being a Jesus follower is brand new. A lot of people, they weren't real sure about it. There was a little bit of confusion. Nobody knew where this movement was going. James didn't know. He just knew he was looking at people who seemed maybe a little confused, who didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to do it. He saw some people who were just kind of half-heartedly checking this thing out. And I think he's so full of this longing that like they would just experience what he had experienced and allow the Holy Spirit to radically alter their lives. He wants them to experience victory. He wants them to experience purpose. He wants them to experience some progress and the brokenness. And I think he's just, like he, with his words, he's just trying to shake them a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like just trying to shake them and say, listen, there is something better for you. There's something more for you. I think this is why, I've said it a few times, but this is one of the reasons why I think this could be the book for this moment in our world. Like we Christians, I see us in that. Like we're a little bit half-hearted these days. We're a little bit distracted these days. We can get confused easily. We can get so caught up in our own selfish desires or in politics or sports or entertainment or social media, all that stuff. It just so quickly fills our mind and our time in a way that crowds out the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, I don't love reading angry words in the Bible. Like, I don't love that. But I'll admit, I need to be shaken from time to time. You know what I'm saying? Like, do you, do you feel that? I'll admit, I need someone to come along and shake me and say, realize what we have. Step into it. 
because without that shaking, um, I can become complacent. So we're going to get a little shaken today. Uh, are you ready for that? Take a breath, brace yourselves, hang on to something. Uh, James is going to shake us uh, because he longs for something better. Look at James chapter 4, and we are going to start in verse 4. <clears throat> James writes this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do, you not, or, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pause right there for a minute. James, he's taking the gloves off a little bit here. Remember, though, he's not just angry. He's not just calling us names. He is desperate for us to step into something. And the issue he's starting to tackle here is this one of friendship and of loyalty. And he, he, he describes God in the world, and he describes it as this either-or proposition. And what that means is that one of those two things is going to lose in your life. And the longing of James' heart is that it's just a longing to let God win in your life. Now, he says the world, to clarify, that doesn't mean like the people around us. We're supposed to love them. We should be friends with them. But what he's talking about is the value system of the world. And he doesn't, in this passage at least, describe really what that means, but this is where it's helpful to remember his background. He's Jewish in orientation, and he's writing to believers who had a Jewish background, and so he assumes they're going to come from the same worldview that he is, which is a worldview that was shaped by the perspective of the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And we, we don't have time to get into all of it, but if you were to read the Ark of the Old Testament, it describes this mindset that is antagonistic to the things of God. It describes exactly what he's talking about. I'm going to give you the super short version. It's pride. That's what is antagonistic to God. It is this mindset that says, I will live for self. That is the value system of this world. Now, you could get that from all sorts of scriptures in the Old Testament, but let's just go straight to the beginning. Remember in Genesis, this idea that breaks the world like the idea that leaves all of us broken and hurting in its wake was this lie from the serpent to Adam and Eve where he says, listen, if you do this thing, then you will be like God. Like you won't need him anymore. You'll know all the stuff that God knows. You'll be able to, to, to be in the driver's seat of your own life. You'll never have to rely on God again. You can put your own wants and your own needs and your own desires. You can put all that stuff first. It's pride. And the Bible teaches God gave us each freedom, and the idea is he gave us the ability to not choose him because he didn't want robots. He wanted people who could actually love him, and for that, we had to have freedom. But whether it's Adam and Eve or each one of us, what we do is we take that freedom, and in a variety of ways, we say to God, I'll take it from here, right? I'm in charge. And that mindset, biblically, is the foundation of every sin that we ever do. That is the root of all sin biblically, and that's what James is talking about when he says friendship with the world is enmity to God. 
And we choose that pride in that moment, and there's a whole lot of stuff that comes with it. That it we, we didn't realize this at the time. It's unintended consequences. Like, for instance, we lose the experience of being able to uh, experience the love of God. It's not because God loves us less, but it's because in our pride we have opted out of that relationship. And so we're no longer able to experience God's love. We lose purpose. Because in our pride, we said, hey, uh, we're going to pursue what we think makes us whole. And we didn't stop to think that none of us really know what makes us whole. And so we flounder around and nothing really satisfies and there's purposeless. We lose connection with others. Like we had this deep connection with our fellow humans, but in our pride, we've chosen ourselves. And so inadvertently or, or, or unintentionally, we start trying to see others as a means to gratify our own selfish desires. And we kind of manipulate and we relate to each other that way and it leaves everyone broken and our relationships become a mess. We even lose our connection with creation. That was the moment when we chose pride that death crept in the back door, that sickness and viruses came along. Nobody bothered to mention all that stuff to us. I'm not sure it would have made a difference. Actually, God did mention it, but we don't want to hear it from him. And so here's James uh, just shaking us, shaking his readers, saying, can't you see that when you choose this stuff, you lose something, you lose your relationship with God, that this pride that you've chosen, it's keeping you from having God. And that's true whether like you're a really bad person, like a human trafficker, or whether you're just trying to live and protect the middle-class American lifestyle. It says no matter what, one day or another, pride or God is going to lose in your life. He uses a couple of powerful words here to shake us. Uh, he uses the word adultery and enmity. He says it's as if like we were in this committed relationship with God and we walked away and we gave ourselves to another. It's adultery. But he also uses this word enmity. It just means hostility. Like when we chose ourselves in our pride, we attacked something in God. We, we became his enemy and we rejected the idea that he was in fact our God. And the miracle that James is pointing to is that despite our adulterous and attacking hearts, God's love was constant. He still loves us well. And he uses this, he quotes this verse, and it, there's all sorts of tricky things about this to, to, in terms of translating it from Greek to English. But what we render here in the ESV is he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And I won't get into all the details, but there's a couple of things that are kind of tricky about that. But can we just acknowledge the implication of what this seems to be saying here? God wants you. God really wants you. Like, like despite your prideful rejection of him, his heart towards you has never changed. He has this yearning in his heart that is attached to you, to who you are. He wants you in his life. That's why James is just, he's shaking us and he's using these big words to get us to see. Listen, either this God who deeply loves you, who yearns for you, is going to lose, or your pride is going to lose. It's an either-or proposition. That's the problem, right? That's the issue. 
now James hits us with the solution, and uh, he rattles off uh, what in English is seven sentences that are some of the most powerful sentences for living the spiritual life or the Christian life that I've ever read. What I want to do, I just want to read through all seven, and then I go back and take them one at a time because they're that good. Uh, Look at James 4, verse 7. Here's what he says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's some good stuff there. The first thing he says is this, submit yourselves therefore to God. Now, the Greek word for submit is uh, the word hypotasso, and it's an ordering word. It means to place under an order of importance, so to place something under something else. And the idea is to place our wants and our needs and our desires below God's wants and needs and desires for us. That's what he's saying there. Now, by the way, you may have heard in church something um, that I just want to clear up. Biblically, no human is exempt from submission. Submission is not just for the wives, as some people would preach. Like, it is for everyone. And in fact, the part that talks about husbands and wives and submission is Ephesians 5. And in that word, or in that passage, Paul uses the same word that James uses here, hypotasso. And he says, submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. And so biblically, everyone is supposed to submit to everyone else. Husbands to wives, all of us to each other. We're just supposed to live this life of putting our needs below other people people's needs. Does that make sense? It's not something that just applies to one gender. It applies to all of us. And James says here it applies to our relationship with God, to put our wants and our needs below what God wants and needs for us. But can we acknowledge, despite the fact that it applies to all of us, none of us like it? Like, it, like this whole idea of submission, nobody wakes up like, I can't wait to submit today. It's going to be great. Um, I think that's because we've experienced it in a human way. We've all experienced the downside of being controlled by somebody else's wants and needs, right? So we shy away from that. That's not what James is talking about here. What he is talking about is this God who the Bible says knit you together in your mother's womb. This God who knows you in a way that you don't even know yourself. This God who yearns for you. This God who gave his life so that you could experience flourishing on earth. So that you could experience restoration and redemption. And when James says, submit to the Lord... What he's calling us to do is to take what we think we know about what's good for us and to place it under what that God who is all-loving and all-powerful says is good for us. That's what he's talking about. And he says, listen, that's where real life is found. Not in running it yourself, but in allowing God the authority to run your life. Submission. And then he follows it up with this statement. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. 
Now, I don't think he's saying, I could be wrong, I don't think he's saying that like the one and only Satan is attacking you. I think actually what he's referring to is this idea that Satan planted like a seed into all of our minds and it just keeps growing and it started with Adam and Eve, it's in all of us. It's this pride that says, I should go my own way, I should be in charge. And what James is saying is, you can resist that. And as you resist that, you'll make progress. It will flee from you. You can affect that tendency that you have to trust yourself to the exclusion of all others. I think the idea here is that the freedom that God gave us, it cuts both ways. And we can use that freedom to reject God, but we also can use that freedom to reject the pride that is in our hearts and to resist it. And then James tells us what we can expect when we do that. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God is a responsive God. He's not like this impassive, distant God. He's eager. He is waiting. It's like he's waiting right there. And like all the adultery and the enmity and the attacking of God, he's dealt with that stuff. So as soon as our heart turns towards him, he is right there, instantly drawing near. So James says... Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that sounds intense. I don't think he's calling us name, names there. I think he, he's actually pointing us to a really great hope. Because here's what he's saying. And like, just hear this. If nothing else, just hear this. If we are wrestling with a sin or a divided heart or a conflicted mind, what James is saying is we're not just stuck with that. Like, that, we're not just stuck in that moment. There are things that we can do there. By God's grace, he can free us, and we can experience some victory in those areas. I don't know if you heard it, but if you didn't, go back and listen to the sermon on September 13th. It was written by Susie, and uh, it talks about temptation and sin, and we are going to struggle with that stuff till the day we die. But by God's grace, there are some things that we can understand about the nature of that struggle so that God can lead us to victory over it. And what James is writing here is this hopeful verse. He believes in the power of God to change a willing heart. You're not just stuck in it. Whatever that struggle is. Believe there is hope because there is hope. And then he says something really weird. Like this, it's just a weird thing to say. This is the weirdest thing in this whole section. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's weird, right? It's a weird thing to say to people that you care about. I, listen, I don't think he's just against joy here. I don't think he's like, you guys are joking too much, stop it. That's not what he's saying. I think he's just encouraging us to maybe connect a little bit to the pain that our pride and our, our sinful rejection of God has caused. I think he's just saying, just hold that a little bit. See that. And when you do, there's grief in that that's natural. You know what this verse reminds me of um, is something that I learned in marriage counseling. Um, if the hurt is a 10, the apology can't be a 2. You know what I'm saying, right? Like if, uh, if the hurt, if I hurt Becky's feelings like big time, I can't be like, well, you know, i sorry you feel that way. Um, and then expect that that level two apology is going to take away her level 10 pain. 
Does that make sense? I've done that to my wife plenty of times. But like if you hurt someone though, and if you can connect to and have a little bit of empathy for the impact of what you have done to that person, that is when real healing happens, and that's when it really can begin. And there have been times when I've done this, and I, like I've, I've hurt my wife, and I, I've seen the pain in her eyes that I have caused. And there have been times when, I, like, I've seen it, and it's so potent, and I just, I hate it, and I'm, I'm moved to tears, not because I'm hurting, but because I see this precious heart that God has entrusted me with as her husband to love her, and I've left her with pain because of me. And in those moments when there's a little bit of empathy and I engage with that hurt in her heart, in those moments there is a healing that can begin to happen that is far greater than just like a, a simple apology would ever produce. But it's connected to that moment of empathy for what is hurting in her heart. I know this verse is weird, but I think what James is saying to us is that moment is worth having with your God. That moment of empathy for the heart of our God, where we connect to the impact of our prideful actions, mourning with God over our sin, grieving with him, weeping with him over the prideful rejection of him. James is saying, that's a good moment to live in. That moment is good for us to connect with. He ends this section with this sentence, which I think is the best sentence in the whole thing. It's like this is the, the main point of, I think, what he's really saying to us. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the second time he's mentioned being humble um, and I think that's because he knows something. He knows something about the spiritual life that's so important. I, humility is magic when it comes to spirituality. There is no spiritual quality that has a greater impact on the bottom line of our spiritual life more than humility. You want to know God more? Humble yourself. Do you want to have victory over sin? Humble yourself. Do you want to have a sense of kingdom purpose that guides your life? Humble yourself. Do you want to have rewarding and healthy relationships? Humble yourself. There's no spiritual quality that has a greater impact on the bottom line of our spiritual life more than humility. And why do you say that? Well, think about Jesus, right? We are growing into his image. Think about Jesus, who despite the fact that he was actually equal with God, despite the fact that he could have asserted that, he didn't assert his equality with God. Instead, he took the form of a servant, and he humbled himself, and he even became obedient in, uh, in humility to death on a cross. That was the nature of our Savior. Humility was the defining quality of Jesus' life, and it was the vehicle by which everything was accomplished for us. And if that's true, doesn't it make sense that it will also be the vehicle by which things are accomplished in us? Humility is magic. It is the, the central quality of those who grow. Whatever it is that we want spiritually, whether it's joy or peace or healing or holiness or freedom, whatever it is, it's on the other side of humility. I think this is why James has shaken us a little bit, right? 
Like, I think he actually wants to trigger our pride because he sees that that pride that you hang on to, that that's the obstacle right now. That's the thing that's got to lose in you. And so he's shaking us a little bit because he realizes in the spiritual life, humility is everything. Humble yourselves. How do we do it? How do we humble ourselves? I think this is one of those points of confusion for a lot of us spiritually. How do you really embrace humility in our lives? Can I just give you three things I know for sure? There's probably a lot more that could be said about humbling yourself, but these are just three things that I have observed uh, about humble people that I think are always true. The first is this, humble people discover their junk. You know, whatever that spiritual junk is inside of us, humble people are interested in discovering what it is. They say, listen, I know there's ways that I may have embraced pride. I don't even realize what they are, but they're in me, and so I want to find out what they are. I want to look for them. You know, the nature of pride is it convinces us that our motives are genuine. Humility, though, on the other hand, it starts with that acknowledgement that maybe that's not actually true. Maybe I think I'm right in all of those circumstances, but maybe I'm actually wrong. Maybe my motives aren't as pure as I've convinced myself they are. I have major issues. Humility says I have issues that I don't even understand about myself, and they're going to play out again and again in my life. They're going to hurt me. They're going to hurt those around me. They're going to hurt God until I am humble enough to seek them out with my Heavenly Father. Humble people discover their junk. There's a great uh, Jungian quote that I heard. Uh, It says, keep your shadows in front of you. They can only take you down from behind. Isn't that good? And isn't that true? Humility says, I know that those shadows are there, and with God, I am going to seek them out and keep seeking them out for the rest of my life. That's what humble people do. Here's my question for us. How are you trying to uncover the junk inside of you that you're not seeing? And if the answer is, I don't know, then you're not. How are you trying to uncover the junk inside of you that you're not seeing? We'll come back to that in a second. Here's a second thing that's always true about humble people. Humble people are honest about their junk with others. Like when they do see something, they disclose it, right? They see something, they say something. And I I don't know if there's any better application of this idea of humble yourself before the Lord than being honest with your struggles before the Lord's people. You know, we all have the same tendency when we see something in us that's ugly, like we see a struggle or a sin, like our first instinct is to cover it up. I mean, that's the story of Adam and Eve, right? Uh, they rejected God, they ate the fruit, they made coverings for their nakedness, and they hid in the bushes. That was all like in the same afternoon, right? And we do that again and again. Like we, we see something inside of us that's ugly and we just kind of hide it. How can I protect that every time we see our sin? Um, you know, on some level you could say pride is the opposite of humility, but I really think maybe hiddenness is the opposite of humility in a lot of ways. Humility says, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to put it on the table. I'm going to be honest about my brokenness. Here's the question I have for all of us. What do you need to be honest with someone about? And a follow-up question, who is that someone? I'll come back to that in just a second. Um, Third thing, generally true about humble people, or always true about humble people. 
Humble people stretch themselves beyond comfort. Like humble people are willing to live in that space that is just beyond what naturally makes them feel comfortable, right? It's hard because we gravitate towards comfort, but humble people are humble enough to say, I'm going to go just beyond that level of comfort. Pride fundamentally is a lack of trust in God. We trust ourselves more than we trust Him. And so the struggle with comfort is, is a struggle with trusting Him enough to step outside of our comfort zone. It is a struggle with pride. Humble people step outside of that zone of comfort. Now, we have to acknowledge, though, with that, it's different for all of us. This is a relative statement to step outside of your comfort zone. It might conjure to your mind, you know, like getting on a plane, going to a third world slum where you can't drink the water and I'm so uncomfortable and it's so hard. Listen, it is relative and we have to acknowledge it's different. I love doing crazy adventurous stuff with God. Like the idea of getting on a plane and going someplace, uh, you, you know, like that might be intimidating to some. I'm like, let's do it. I can be ready in an hour. I like seriously, I have a bag. It's almost packed. Let's go. Um, but the truth of this is it's relative. So what stretches me beyond my comfort um, you know, I mean, like it's sitting on a couch in my Christian therapist office and talking for an hour about my heart, you know, and about my issues. Um, I would, uh, I'll be a little transparent. I was talking just this week with my Christian therapist about why I describe all of my emotional needs with the adjective stupid. Um, like, oh, I just had felt that and it was so stupid and um, like if I was somehow smarter I wouldn't have any emotional needs or problems and my therapist is like listen you realize that is a lie from the enemy that he has told you and you need to stop believing it right and the whole time I'm thinking man I wish I was in a refugee camp or undercover in a brothel or anywhere besides here because it's so uncomfortable having these conversations about that sort of stuff but I'm learning to trust God enough to go to that place that is right outside of my zone of comfort, whatever that means for me. For you, whatever that thing is that might be good for you, but you don't want to do it, that's probably the thing, right? That's the point where you should explore stretching yourself. That's what it means to humble yourself. So my question is just that, where do you need to stretch yourself? Let me put these three questions that I've asked up on the screen. I'm gonna leave you with three questions, three and a half questions, I suppose. Um, here's what I wanna encourage you to do with this. Humble yourself before the Lord. Would you take a picture of that or maybe write those down? And would you set aside this week just 15 minutes just to seriously answer those three questions, just between you and God? Just seriously answer them. And realize the point about this is not to make us feel bad with our spiritual life. That is not why James is writing this way. I know there's a little bit of a tone, but I want you to hear the longing in his voice and hear the longing in these questions. God so deeply yearns for you. He wants you so desperately. He wants all of you, even and especially those broken parts of you that you don't even see even and especially those broken parts of you that you don't want to talk about or those places that you don't want to go. God longs for you. Humility is not, it's not about embarrassing yourself. It's not about pointing out how awful you are. That's not what humility is. It is about trusting a God 
who has seen all of the ways that our pride has wrecked us and wants to save us from that. James longs for us to walk away from that pride, to embrace this God who yearns for us. He's shaken us a little bit, but I really think it is out of a great mercy that he shakes us. Pray with me. So Lord, we come to you today, and we come to you humbly, God, but not because you've humiliated us. We come to you humbly because we recognize that our pride has humiliated us. Our pride has wrecked us. And we long for something else. We long to be lifted from that, to be lifted by you because we cannot seem to lift ourselves. Lord, we long to see our sin the way that you do because we don't see it very well. We long to be free from our hiddenness. Will you help us with that? Will you give us courage? Lord, we know our comfort. It is a sad substitute for the divine purpose that you have for us in our life. And so, God, we say yes to whatever it is that you're asking, even and especially those things that we don't want to do because we're worried that it makes us uncomfortable, God. We say yes to that stuff. We are so thankful that in the midst of our adultery and in the midst of our attack on you, you never stopped loving us, even when we were your enemy. And we grieve at the way that our prideful rejection of you has hurt your hearts, has hurt those around us, and has hurt us, God. Would you create in us a longing that will never be quenched, that we will pursue for the rest of our lives? Amen.